The following program is for informational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new science, so do your homework before putting money on the line. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, Episode 3. So today on Coinbase, Bitcoins are hovering at around $680. Mm-mm-mm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining us today as we podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm John Barrett. And I'm Lyd Shaw. We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love to talk about Bitcoins. And share what we learn with you, the listener. Welcome to the show, and thanks for listening. On today's show, we bring on a local East Nashville Bitcoiner, David Winter, for a lively discussion about Mt. Gox and other controversial topics. And once again, we head on over to the Nashville Bitcoin Meetup, where we talk about what it's like to keep and lose family wealth over eight generations. We also take you to Israel to talk with Ron Gross, Executive Director of the MasterCoin Foundation. And at the end of the show, stick around for a super secret Bitcoin surprise. On today's show, we welcome David Winter, a local East Nashville Bitcoiner from up the street. David, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, pretty simple person. I work from home, which is nice. That's what also gives me the chance to stay abreast of a lot of these topics. I work for a small software company that does mostly uh, labor tracking and simple things like that for uh, construction companies. So, so you're used to computers. Used to computers, and it's very, very not cool what I do. So, That's Is that right. a requirement to get into Bitcoin? Being not cool, I think it helps. How did you discover Bitcoin? The first time I got laid off after the stock market crashed, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, I started diving into the realm of finance. Growing up more or less lefty and a Democrat, I found I knew absolutely nothing about finance. So I, uh, I jumped in wholeheartedly and, and even considered trying to get like a job at a bank or being a trader or being something like that. But I realized <laughs> I'm a nice guy and I wouldn't make it far in that world. <laughs> That being said, I still chose to view my politics and, uh, you know, things in general through the prism of finance. And so in staying abreast of what was going on over a really interesting period of our world history, Bitcoin started to emerge up out of that froth and uh, started to get turned on to it by just seeing comments on some of the blogs that I frequented. So that's how I initially came across Bitcoin. And I thought it was an interesting idea at first. I think it was still probably sub $10 at the time. Hmm. So I I didn't have the, uh, the foresight or the wherewithal to jump in at that time, but it, it was definitely on the radar from then. Can you tell us a little bit about acquiring Bitcoin in the early days? <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what's <laughs> interesting is because, you know, when it first started to take off, I think it jumped from maybe like the 10, 11 range up into the 30s real quick. Yeah. Happened, I think, pretty fast. And so from there, I think uh, there was maybe even a couple actual blog posts instead of people commenting. Uh, I, I read ZeroHedge.com a lot. It's one of my favorite uh, financial websites. And they, they're a no-spin, uh, pretty anti-politician, pretty anti-establishment. And and I uh, like to look under the hood and digest numbers. So they went from it went from me maybe finding a few uh, uh, comments that were revolving around the idea of Bitcoin to th- these these bloggers actually now posting some you know some uh, some little snippet articles or little news on Bitcoin and and that really even within that realm. Uh, caused it to kind of blow up a little bit. And the conversations and debates on there are really heated. But in any case, to to answer the question is, you know, I think when it jumped from in the 30s and then jumped up into like the 70s, you know, that was another big jump. And that maybe happened within a few weeks after that first jump up to 30. I remember it. And so I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. So, you know, I start looking online and looking for different ways to get in. And it's all kind of pain in the butt. Uh, Being a little bit of a freedom-loving person, I wanted to do as much of it off the the radar as I could. So, uh, you know, not wanting to go one of the routes that necessarily linked something with a bank account um, and trying to find uh, a way where you were hopefully not going to get ripped off was kind of what I was looking for. I, I don't even actually remember the company that I used because I'm pretty sure they're one of the ones that are gone now. 
But in any case, uh, you know, you, you, you fill out something online at, at, at the uh, computer and then run up to, uh, I ran up to CVS and it was like a MoneyGram exchange. Uh-huh. And you would buy it that way, and I and I bought uh, a couple times that way. Just put a little bit of money in, and uh, and then after that, then a bunch of my friends, because I was already in on it, a bunch of my friends, as it started to blow up from there, because then it went from the seventies up into the two seventies or two eighties, right? In the blink wow. of an eye, yeah. And uh, then I had a bunch of friends who, who price chasers mm-hmm. coming in at the time, you, you know, wanting me to buy Bitcoin from them, and I'm like, hey, you know, let's do your own due diligence, do do some research, figure it out, and if you want to be a Bitcoin player, you got to learn this stuff anyway. Find your way into the game. Yeah. So uh, re- reluctantly, and after. Uh, this is my best friend I'm talking about here. Primarily, he wanted to buy Bitcoin from you. He, no, well, he wanted me to get the Bitcoin for him. Oh, right. Because he right, didn't right. want to. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, Brad's probably going to listen to this. The Bitcoin so. messenger. Right. So, right. so then I go. Uh, he, he talks me into it. He transfers some money to my bank account. I go up there, and now this time, this is maybe you know a week later. Uh, at this point, now there's extra questions when you're filling out the paperwork for the the MoneyGram. And the questions are, I think they were like regarding the U.S. Treasury and money laundering. It was like had implications like that on the little questionnaire. And I was like, I got scared. You know, I was (laughs) like, uh, you know, do I use my real name? You know, I didn't know what to do. I actually turned around and went home and thought about it for about 10 or 15 minutes. That's a a heavy trip to CVS. It was (laughs) heavier than normal. You know, normally it's Q-tips and uh, compressed air. You know, this time it's like now I'm contemplating. What are you going to use that Sudafed for, (laughs) sir? So in any case, I went back up, finished the transaction and got it to him. But from there, it kind of just made me a little bit more reluctant and a little bit more, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but uh, cautious maybe in in just approaching this. And so from there, uh, you know, that that next month or so was sort of Wild West-like in the Bitcoin realm, massive uh, fluctuations in price, um, you know, and you could tell, you know, by watching Mt. Gox, uh, I would would watch their their charts uh, using the Clark Moody Bitcoin site. And uh, you could watch the orders fill in real time. Ooh, wow. And I mean, you want to talk about watching. It was exciting to watch. I mean, there, it was, there was pretty heavy volume at that point. A lot of people trying to jump into the space. And then I preferred to, tr- to trade on one of the smaller exchanges. BTCE was mm-hmm. the one that I traded. So I would watch Gox for price action, but trade on BTCE because... Boy, sure is a lot slower in that in that one compared to the the way the big boys were throwing around big chunks of money and the you know massive you know even a thirty forty dollar price swing within a couple minutes was <laughs> par for the course uh, yeah, that's for right. that. I mean, it's still to some extent like that, but uh, you know at that point in time, Gox was the game, and uh, and so you know watching there trading on the other exchange and trying <laughs> trying not to lose my butt. Um, and w- this was this was early spring 2013. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely because uh, I, I know one of the things that made me attempt my first withdraw was when uh, w- when our uh, the Feds made a statement like, mm-hmm. okay, Bitcoin's on the radar, and we're going to take a look at it. And you know, we had a, there was a price crash that that corresponded with that, as Bitcoin likes to react to every piece of news out there, uh, as do our markets in general. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 that definitely made it like, okay, you know, you, you could end up with money trapped in on the inside here. So I, I pulled a good chunk of it and left the rest in to ride. And, and that's basically where I still am with it. But so I haven't really been jumping in or out or, or putting a lot of money in recently just because of uncertainty uh, yeah. of, of where this yeah. is all going. Bitcoin is definitely a drama queen. On that <laughs> subject of certainty, in terms of security, what do you do to keep, you know, let's say, I don't know how many Bitcoins you own, and that's not my business. Let's say you own five. Are they all out there on an exchange, or do you have any paper wallets? Because I've always heard that just having your Bitcoins on an exchange or your USD on an exchange, well, you know, right now, this week, Mt. Gox, case in point, if you have a Bitcoin on Mt. Gox, you can't get it off, which, you know, is really a, a crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's literally a crime, but it seems like a crime. So uh, what do you do for security, you know? For I should be more secure uh, than I am. I do have uh, four online wallets at different exchanges, mm-hmm. and, and I just basically open them all up around the same period of time 
just in in what I was reading and listening to other people, and they were saying, "Hey, there there is risk. Don't be an idiot." So, I mean, it, it's Bitcoin's way of diversification. You know, uh, it, it's nice to have uh, to have some exposure to it at the same time because of whether it's you know I heard about a uh, a Mac virus recently that that was installing on on a, some wallet software and was kind of pilfering bits of Bitcoin from the people who were using that, or whether it was some of the hack attempts that all of these exchanges have faced uh, over over this period of time. Because now you know, criminals like money, and uh, when there's a, a lot of interest in a in a particular space, uh, those elements will find their way into it and uh, and, and figure out ways to to get them some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, when I hear you use an example like five Bitcoins, which at a height might have equaled, you know, five, six thousand dollars. Yeah. And then the implication in that question is, oh, my gosh, how do you treat that so carefully in many wallets? And is it on exchange? Is it in your home wallet, in a, in a paper wallet? You know, I think about the example of how recently I was buying a used car on Craigslist this last year, which cost about five to six thousand dollars. And it wasn't that big a deal to just take that much cash out, put it in my pocket, go make the car purchase and be done with it. You know, it's not the, you know, sometimes I think some of these descriptions get blown out of proportion in terms of fear factor when obviously if you're talking about large numbers and life savings, it's a huge deal. But for a lot of transactions, you know, I mean, we don't want to lose money, but come on, we carry money in our pockets to go out to dinner and go get a drink, whatever, go to the grocery store. And so I think that uh, sometimes people take it a little too extreme, worrying about what's going to happen if. Mm. I agree. But, you know, if you have $750 in your pocket right now, or, you know, you lay your wallet down, it disappears. That hurts, right? <laughs> it but, does hurt. But it if you hurt. have one Bitcoin and it gets stolen from you, that hurts even more because in the back of your mind, you're thinking a year from now, that could, that could be, you know, $750,000. You know, we have all these projections. So I think it hurts more uh, for that reason, because we have these projections and the volatility and we're optimistic about Bitcoin, the protocol. Yeah. So I think that's the difference. But I agree with well, I agree. There's a there's a kind of an unusual paranoia about uh, holding on to your Bitcoins and securing your Bitcoins. But, you know, like David said, yeah, this, this is kind of the Wild West of uh, this new currency, this new store of value, if you will, and the thieves are out there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we have more to gain by putting aside our fears and moving forward with the use of Bitcoin than we do yeah. by holding back and being afraid to get into it because something might happen. I right, agree. Right. But at the same time, I would say, don't put more skin in the game than you feel like you can lose. That's right. I don't have a whole lot of skin <laughs> in the game. Either, so. Me either. So, so we're it. good. And on the subject of Mt. Gox, back to that just for a second, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos is one person who recently has talked about the way that they have their whole site set up. And it, it has a lot to do with their lack of knowledge or their lack of interest or both in getting the technology right because they have their technology wrong. Certain things are certain things have happened there, and if they survive this, will continue to happen until they get some developers in there who know what they're doing and who know how to code. That's their big problem right now. But I say, you know, is it by design? You know, if you had, if all through the history of Mount Gox, you had, um, or over the past two years, you had a Japanese bank account and you could get yen out. Right. It's an arbitrage made in heaven. Right. You can just make money hand over foot. So maybe that's maybe that was the real design. I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying this, but by design. But if that was if it was designed for that purpose, a lot of people have made a lot of money. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, there's definitely lots of different ways to look at where Mount Gox is and how they got there at this point. Um, one, one of the things is who knew it was going to get this big? So a lot of times I think maybe when you're looking at maybe what some of the developers were thinking and when, when this, you know, because the site was originally for Magic, the, the, the card game. What's it called, Lidge? <laughs> Magic the Gathering. Magic nice. the Gathering. Is there anything it's, you want to add? Uh, I don't know much about okay. it other than I know it has, it's sort of like a Dungeons and Dragons. Sort right, of, right. A Dungeons and Dragons sort of thing. And so that's how Gox was originally founded. So I'm sure dealing with multiple millions of dollars and, and having all this money flying around and, and having the, the set of problems that they ended up with on their lap was not their original intent. And right. is probably at some point did end up getting beyond, as I saw somebody say, the system that Gox has was not designed for scalability, which again, 
who could have foreseen some of this stuff? I'm sure there was a few uh, of the of those brilliant minds out there who who did see it uh, as you know for the potential that it had. Right. But uh, I think it's fair to say then that you know if they had had an ear to the tech community and to the developers that are you know developing Bitcoin, if they'd had an ear to the ground like we did. Certainly, they would have started making changes, right? Because we, you know, there were because there were a lot of people that already knew that they were having problems with their development team and with their coding. How could they not have known that? Well, and I think that to me has been what was most disappointing uh, is coming out of Gox and why we could maybe use the word criminal there. What we saw was Gox basically shut down their ability to withdraw on about the 7th. And so everybody was eagerly looking for the statement that they released on the uh, yesterday, I think. Yeah. So Monday the 10th. So that right there, I think is what, you know, hey, Gox could make it through all of this and end up stronger like they've made it through the last few problems, uh, different issues they've had, whether it's been with, with law, with dealing with people who were using their exchanges to, to buy drugs, you know, problems with the Silk Road or other companies who were money transmitters who weren't properly classified as money transmitters and were finding themselves in trouble with our feds. So, you know, I think a lot of the initial problems in Gox were due to the federal side of things kind of creeping up on them and that causing problems with some of the counterparties they were dealing with. And then also, I think to some extent, they were not necessarily classifying themselves as money transmitters. So they had a couple pretty chunky accounts stolen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think maybe a US account or two, and then uh, maybe a Japanese account or two that had multiple millions of dollars in it. So, you know, I think those things happen. But to finish my my thought was uh, when, when they came out with their statement yesterday and then blamed it on the Bitcoin protocol... That to me alienated them from the rest of the Bitcoin community, and the only the only people that it's not going to hurt them with are, are people who are just stepping into Bitcoin and don't know anything about it, and have just heard of Gox because of uh, brand recognition. Right. Classic PR move, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which it, to me is so short sighted, and especially just kind of glancing around at the uh, the reaction from the community itself, especially you know the core development community, and then not only that, but the the CEO sits on the uh, the Bitcoin Foundation board. And so a lot of people are now calling for his, for his resignation because, uh, you know, um, a lot of people have stepped out and have distanced themselves from Gox saying, Hey, uh, yeah, this malleability problem that, that he referred, that was referred to in the statement, that's a known issue. And it's, it's an issue, but you know, so it's basically saying no unconfirmed transactions are safe. Once they start to get confirmations then they're secure. Can you just explain a little bit about what is this issue that they're talking about? Well, I, I don't think uh, I know a lot on, about it to to really give a great answer. But uh, the general gist of it seems to be that there is a potential for double spending on transactions that have not been confirmed by the network. So there's that initial uh, period of time right after the transaction's been conducted where it's still not confirmed. Which even as a Bitcoin beginner, I now already know you might want to wait 30 minutes right, to exactly. an hour for three to six verifications on the blockchain Bingo. to know that your transaction has gone through. Somehow Gox was reading the transactions incorrectly. That's all I know. And, and again, I don't think it was a problem. Uh at the t- you know back in the day when Gox was you know I mean when Bitcoin was what it was but now that it's blown up and, uh, and again when you have volatility like we have that that is not necessarily good for a business who's trying to who's trying to you know conduct themselves in a way where they have to deal with mass deposits or mass mass withdrawals based on investor sentiment with every spike in Bitcoin. So, I mean, it does set some interesting things and it's kind of like in an ideal situation and everything's just kind of moving along and nobody comes and gets their money at once. Everything's fine. Not saying Bitcoin is fractional reserve like our current monetary system, but to some extent, when everybody wants everything at once, that's going to, you know, cause some problems. And and I think also in Gox's defense, what they're claiming is that they sort of have maybe this hot wallet where stuff's getting withdrawn from it typically, but in periods where you have massive spikes of withdrawals, maybe due to a crash in the price or something like that. Uh, so they say that they have a lot of the Bitcoin stored on in cold storage so that it takes time for them to, you know, get the Bitcoins from there and transfer them and then, and then start to distribute from there. So... But who's to say that they're not acting as a fractional reserve? There's no way for us to know that. I mean, for instance, if you have, 
you know, 10 Bitcoins on Mt. Gox, you don't really have 10 Bitcoins sitting there in the same way that you don't have $1,000 sitting in the vault at your bank, right? You know, theoretically, because, I, you know, I was just thinking about that concept this morning, and, and I haven't come to any final conclusions on it, because I think there are those two sides in the sense that we're in a fractional reserve. If we all went to the bank at once and tried to withdraw, we'd have problems. Whereas we should have, you know, our, our transactions, our, our, you know, wallet numbers, the amount that's in the wallets, they should all be accounted for at some place. Now, you, you're, I think you're right that it's possible that some of these exchanges could be playing games or, or you know, maybe playing their own ARBs or seeing where they can get away with different things. But it has been interesting to see a couple of the other exchanges step out too and kind of throw Gox under the bus. <laughs> Say, hey, we're not looking at uh, the transactions the same way Gox does. You know, we're, we're looking at them in a different way. So we're not necessarily having to deal with the problems that Gox says they're dealing with. And, 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 and also a few people, you know, whether they're CEOs of Bitcoin companies or, or whether they were uh, Bitcoin developers, they're really, really upset with Gox. And, and they are, you know, adamant that the problem is not with Bitcoin. The problem is with Gox. And so I think, you know, where we're at with that now, it, it will be interesting to see if Gox can pull through it. I mean, they went from being 70% of the uh, of the volume in Bitcoin in April to less than 20% today. At one point, they were 90%. Right, yeah. Go back a year yeah, or so. Yeah, That is a magical gathering. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. <laughs> hey, so David, make a prediction. Mount Gox will survive, or this is the death of old Mount Gox? Well, I think a lot of people have, been, have, have jumped out before and called the death of Mount Gox only to see them bounce back a little stronger. Uh, Prediction, I don't think they'll get that market share back that they've lost. Uh, they could, uh, it would be very feasible for them to stay open, uh, it, it provided they do the right things, maybe make, you know, it, it, more, more than just PR spin, maybe hire a couple people and, and show some real good faith to the Bitcoin community, because I think they've done a lot of damage to their reputation. And in a game like this right now, Reputation is the only uh, thing you got. And like you said, have a little more respect for the developers and what Gavin and his crew are doing, right? The good stewards of Bitcoin. You know, I, I think that it would be so easy for them to learn, to have learned from those guys. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, because of the way their statement comes out, everybody's looking forward to, hey, what's, what, what are they going to say? And then they're like, oh, it's, it's not us, it's Bitcoin. Right. And, you know, if I was Mt. Gox, I would have a long time ago, as soon as I realized we had development problems or coding problems, I would have consulted with someone like Gavin and I would have said, hey, can you help us? You know, we'll pay you a consulting fee to come, you know, help us get this right, get the tech end of it right. What's so hard about that? It's not <laughs> like they didn't have the money, right? Right. I mean, that's ridiculous. I say this is the beginning of the death of old Mount Gox. That's what I say. That's my prediction. I have to say that I, I can't help wondering, having heard Warren Buffett say something along the lines in 2009, that his investing philosophy was when everybody rushes in, he steps back and gets out of the picture. And when everybody rushes out, he just he just walks right in to collect. And I, you know, I wonder, is there an opportunity like that now with Mt. Gox? As it crashes, maybe it's the best time to invest in Mt. Gox. Well, and, and maybe not even necessarily in Mt. Gox, but I think uh, because, you know, we're, we're talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, whether you're trading it on BTCE or whether you're trading it on Gox. Unless but, you can't get it out. Unless you can't get it out. <laughs> right. But with the problems that Gox is having, it's definitely having an impact on the price. Yeah. And so as it's having an impact mm -hmm. on the price, provided you think that going forward, it's a good investment opportunity, these are dips that could be bought and maybe should be bought. And, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, he's, he's a, a king investor and, and that's what they say about the big dogs. They buy when there's blood in the streets. And uh, you look at what we had a few months ago when, you know, every day or two days, some good news would come out. Uh, yeah. You know, China, Baidu, the, the Chinese Google taking it for payments, uh, the Vancouver ATMs opening up, which when you talk about getting money in and out. I just got an email this morning that Fiverr.com is now accepting Bitcoin. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Or, or Overstock.com. And know? when Bitcoin's finally go, go down to being worth $5 again, it'll be a great exchange there. <laughs> I don't think we're going to see that happen. This is Paul Freeman. He was saying some pretty fascinating stuff about being an eighth generation Tennessean and understanding permaculture and farm culture here and how it might apply to Bitcoin. I'm Paul Freeman. My current company is uh, Freeman Domes. It's plural, F-R-E-M-E-N. And we're focused on providing some off-grid solutions with permaculture design and biotexture techniques. 
uh, using a lot of different ancient techniques and food forest applications. My background is an eighth generation Tennessean. I've been here my entire life, born in Vanderbilt, and my professional career, I've been doing underwater construction. And after the BP disaster, my career shifted. I took my loss of income payment from BP and I invested in a monolithic dome company. And we build permanent structures that'll stand up to 450 mile per hour winds. Uh, they don't rot, they don't burn. Earthquakes can't bring them down. And uh, just starting to focus on a more permanent solution for a lot of the problems that we face as humanity. So I was attracted by Bitcoins. You Are you know. accepting them for your for your domes yet? Yes, we accept Bitcoins for dome payments and any other kind of off-grid kind of solutions you have, solar panels, hoop houses, uh, raised beds, uh, farm setups. Yeah. Tell us the name of the company one more time, please. Freeman Domes. And then you also mentioned something about eighth-generation Tennessean and you know having experienced what you felt like was a coming and going of wealth in that many generations at had a relationship to currency and how you thought Bitcoin might be a good solution? Well, from what I've studied, in the 1790s, my family were indentured servants, and uh, we got the last name Freeman, and they came in through the Carolinas and settled in Tennessee. First recorded record was in uh, 1796, and ever since then, my family's been through a lot of different cycles. I know that we lost wealth uh, during the Civil War, we lost wealth um, during the Great Depression, and then through all the inflation since uh, December 23rd, 1913 when uh, they enacted the Federal Reserve Act and instituted the system that we live under now, you know, we've only seen our wealth diminish more and more since then. Well, one thing you haven't lost is a proficiency for family history. No. <laughs> cool. Thanks very much, Paul. That was great. Today, Lidge and I have the pleasure of speaking with Ron Gross, Executive Director of the MasterCoin Foundation. Ron, welcome. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Sure. Can you give us a little background about how you came to be involved with the MasterCoin Foundation? Yeah, so I'll be happy to. MasterCoin is, uh, or the, the idea of MasterCoin has been around for uh, more than two years now. And J.R. Willett, uh, the founder, uh, had uh, published a white paper uh, on, uh, I think it was January 2012. That got circulated a bit. Uh, he worked on the details and, and refined it. And finally, in August of uh, 2013, he launched the first version of the white paper. But that's basically the spec of what MasterCoin is. Then, you know, we did the, the fundraiser during August. He, JR, started the fundraiser and gathered up various members of BitAngels to help him build the MasterCoin Foundation, mm -hmm. which is a nonprofit foundation dedicated to really safeguarding this budget and allocating it or spending it to build the MasterCoin protocol and the various clients and open source implementations. We've been working uh, for several months and gathering up speed. Uh, at first, uh, the, most of the development happened by uh, outsourced uh, or external bounties that uh, JR mostly published. Over the last few months, we've, uh, we've started the transition into a more in-house uh, mode of development where we have uh, several dedicated developers and other team members that are just working, you know, they're quitting their day jobs and coming and working on, on MasterCoin full time. And this is going to re really accelerate uh, this February we, as we have uh, seven full time people just coming online. Ron, what are MasterCoins and how can they be used? What are the use cases? Yes. MasterCoin solves, or actually the Master Protocol, as we like to call it now, solves uh, a few key problems or uh, deficiencies in Bitcoin. Maybe the most talked about problem uh, with Bitcoin or, or difficulty is the volatility. As we've all seen, there have been various bubbles and bursts over the last few years. And right now, for anyone holding Bitcoin, you know, they have to really be exposed to that currency risk. They can't use all the nice properties of Bitcoin without you know, worrying if their savings will be wiped out. And we've seen major fluctuations over a few hours even. Mm -hmm. MasterCoin allows you to take digital currencies, take MasterCoins, and to peg their value to any other asset or commodity that you want. 
you can peg it to dollars, to gold, to euros, to stocks, to whatever you want. And then basically you choose your degree of exposure to whatever asset is out there. Uh, and you still retain all the beautiful properties of Bitcoin's decentralized currency. So pegging a value to something external, this is one major feature or one major pain that we're solving. Another important problem uh, in the Bitcoin space is, uh, of course, the security. And everyone, you know, coming into Bitcoin always uh, gets uh, these lectures on how to store Bitcoin correctly and, and securely. You have uh, different startups and, and devices trying to solve that problem. So uh, with MasterCoin, you can dedicate or you can designate uh, specific wallets or addresses as uh, saving accounts that are by definition not... The, the, these, uh, these addresses, they have reversible transactions. So you can keep your private keys for these wallets elsewhere, offline, and somewhere that's not accessible by any hacker. And if there is anything, someone hacks your computer and tries to get all your master coins, you could always issue a chargeback uh, within a configurable period of time. Another important part of the ecosystem that MasterCoin comes into play here is user-generated currencies. Now, there have been a lot of uh, attempts over the last uh, few years or a lot of uh, services where people can create uh, or do IPOs for their companies, create shares, sell them over various different exchanges. A lot of these exchanges have been closed over the last year, especially. We've seen GLBC, Bitfunders and others uh, close off to US customers or limit their service in any way or in some ways. The master protocol allows you to issue your own currency, your own smart property, your own decentralized application, and just trade that on the same distributed exchange where you can trade all the other assets in MasterCoin. So Ron, I would like to follow up with a couple of questions based on what you just said that caught my ear. One is, could you explain further the meaning of pegging the value of MasterCoin to another currency? Uh, the best way I can explain this uh, is perhaps with an example. So let's say uh, you and I both have uh, 100 master coins, and, and let's say that one master coin is currently worth $15. So we both have uh, the value of $1,500 uh, at our disposal. So I'm a pegger. I want to, to peg the value of my master coins to the dollar. I want to always have $1,500. You're uh, what we call a speculator. You're speculating that the dollar's uh, value will change uh, compared to the MasterCoin, and you want to profit from that. So you and I can go into a distributed contract, which basically says we're both putting our 100 MasterCoins in a joint pool, and we're following the value of the dollar. And whenever that contract breaks, I always get $1,500 worth of MasterCoin, and you always get the rest of this pool of money. Right now, we have information feed providers that are pumping information into the blockchain and, and basically stating what the current value of the dollar per MasterCoin is. So when the contract uh, breaks, when either of us want to break the contract or when time elapses, then the blockchain automatically knows uh, or has the information on how much of this joint 200 MasterCoin pool belongs to each of us. So uh, we both get what we bargained for without trusting any centralized authority to hold our funds. We are trusting the feed provider to provide accurate information. And this is why we should always use feeds from recognized, uh, reputable companies. But we can also aggregate a few of these price feeds and just choose you know, an average of a few of the feeds or majority of the feeds that we choose to rely on. Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. I'm sure our listeners are too. Ron, what does it mean that your MasterCoin wallet is also your Bitcoin wallet? This seems a bit confusing to me. How does the blockchain differentiate or keep them separate? So the blockchain is, is one single blockchain, right? What's different is the parsing. Uh, we have one wallet uh, software that supports Bitcoin, MasterCoins, uh, test MasterCoins, and any other asset that's issued on top of MasterCoin. Now, this wallet software just parses all the Bitcoin transactions because everything in our design is uh, boils down eventually to a Bitcoin transaction. So our wallet parses all these different transactions and understand which of the, these are real Bitcoins you have in your wallet and which of these transactions also encode other forms of value. 
every MasterCoin transaction is encoded in a tiny Bitcoin transaction, right? So, so it's a dual meaning. You also get the Bitcoins from the transaction, uh, but you also get the, the master coins or other derived currency that is encoded on, on those bits and bytes. So, Ron, what does it mean to coinify something? Can anything be coinified? Yeah, so I think you're referring to what the, maybe Dominic uh, posted on our blog uh, last time. You know, you, ha- you have different types of coins that you can issue, right? And, and some of these will be the, these contracts that I talked about. Uh, you can take the contract that you and I have. You can divide it up, right? We have a $1,500 contract, right? You can divide it up to 1,500 pieces and and just, you know, suddenly you have $1,500 at your disposal. Each of these slices of contract is actually a coin. You can can go and pay with that and you can slice it up to smaller pieces if you want. So this Mm -hmm. is one example of coinifying this contract. Now, uh, another thing would be, of course, the smart property angle. Uh, Basically, that's anyone create a coin that represents whatever contract they're willing to abide by, right? So if I'm starting a new company, uh, I can uh, issue a million tokens and then IPO those and just later on give dividends to holder of these coins. If I own a house or several real estate assets, I can uh, allocate a coin to each of them and then have that coin, that digital representation of an asset be traded. So a coin in this context is just something that you can own and, and trade freely on the, on the exchange. Is the MasterCoin Foundation itself coinified? Well, you could think about it that way. I wouldn't stick too much to the term coinified. I mean, it's just something that we use to, to explain things. But uh, essentially, the MasterCoin is the first protocol, uh, other than, than Bitcoin, of course, that lets you invest directly in the success of the protocol. So in a sense, yes, it is coinified because you can buy master coins. If you believe that the protocol would be successful, uh, you, you can buy master coins and b- basically be a part of that success, right? You can trade these and, and use that inside the protocol. Uh, I see. And, and, and like MasterCoin, uh, there will be other protocols that, that will follow up and, and build on top of this infrastructure uh, that will allow all sorts of, uh, of different operations to be coinified in this way. Okay, hey, I've got a question for you. Um, when we talk about Bitcoin, Bitcoin decentralizes ownership uh, by distributed mining, right? How does MasterCoin centralize ownership? Is it basically the same thing? Right, so uh, it's not quite like Bitcoin. Uh, we had a decentralized IPO in the sense that anyone, you know, where we published or JR published the IPO, everything was public. And there was uh, no pre-mine at all, but just rather everyone got what they invested in. And uh, and this is, uh, you know, everyone was uh, invited to to invest uh, and and whoever invested got uh, his money's worth as a form of master coins. And now the master coins are traded on the on the open market, but they're not they're not being issued anymore. No, no, no new master coins are being created right now. Uh, although we have actually some recent discussions of doing some changes to allow users to pay transaction fees in MasterCoin. And this way, we can also engage the mining community. You know, it's a bit early, so there aren't a lot of technical details and just preliminary discussions, but it's also something we're considering as a way to just distribute MasterCoins out to the, to the mining community. And this is in relation to the upcoming changes in uh, Bitcoin 0.9 that will basically separate the miners that just look at the Bitcoin transactions and the full archive nodes that hold uh, other metadata uh, information like MasterCoin. You mentioned investors. How many initial investors are there and what percentage of MasterCoins do they own? Do you feel that these initial investors have any unfair advantage over others who may wish to invest in MasterCoins? Yeah, so there were all of all of BitAngels were specifically exposed to Mastercoin, and uh, you know there was nothing uh, private about the, the IPO. So anyone could invest, and we also had the articles uh, in various places. I myself spoke about Mastercoin in, in the context of the Israeli meetup group. Uh, there were I don't know the exact number. Uh, I think about a hundred or so, or maybe more different uh, investors. Uh, I admit that there is a certain uh, 
a concentration or initial concentration of uh, MasterCoins with a few holders. But this is just a way of, of how that IPO went. And the market itself will, you know, determine how these tokens get uh, divided. Now, yeah, and, and regarding any uh, any claims of unfair advantages, I, I would compare MasterCoin to a startup, basically. Most startups, or almost all startups, you get an initial group of one, two, three, four people, maybe, that just come together, create an idea, and, and, and you know, they end up owning huge chunks of that company, right? Right. And, and they start bringing in slowly angel investors and VCs, and it takes years and years until they IPO and basically let anyone uh, join their, their investment. MasterCoin and, and other, uh, other protocols that are IPO'd in a similar way, they, they take a different approach. Anyone can join from an early stage. So you know, if you compare the centralization of MasterCoin to other things, MasterCoin is more decentralized than any startups, startup that I know of. But uh, it's, uh, it's more centralized than Bitcoin because it had a short issuance period. I so see. It's somewhere in the middle. You know, I have to confess something to you that when I first heard about MasterCoins, I got excited. I, I read a little bit of the white paper, and then I went right out. I went to Cripsy, and I bought a whole bunch of MasterCoins. I think I bought 30,000 MasterCoins. Right. Right. Well, then I saw, well, there's only going to be 600,000 MasterCoins ever um, mined. And so I thought, well, I'm, a, I'm going to be a millionaire, right? And then I realized, of course, wah, 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 um, that I had bought the wrong MasterCoin. I'm sure that you are not happy knowing that there is a, another cryptocurrency out there that does not have anywhere near the utility of your MasterCoin and the MasterCoin project. What do you think about that? And is there any way to stop these guys? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the free internet, right? Anybody do, does what they want. Uh, J.R. Willett published the, the concept of MasterCoin, as I said, two years ago, more than two years ago now. So, uh, you know, our MasterCoin, his MasterCoin is the, the, the real MasterCoin. Unfortunately, another group came uh, a lot, a long, a long time after that and created another currency coin, MasterCoin, which is just a, basically a Bitcoin fork without any, any other uh, special properties added. You know, with the whole range of Bitcoin forks and alts we have today, really an investor needs to do his homework and understand what uh, the correct coin is. And it's really unfortunate that the, there are exchanges trading these, uh, but you know, we're working our, our uh, angle to just get our coin, the MSC coin into exchanges. And, uh, you know, not, uh, I, I advise anyone to just really make sure that whatever coin they're buying is the right coin and, and not just go on by what's listed on some exchange. You know, that's good advice. And the good news for me is I think I only spent like $20. Oh, all right. <laughs> that's great. But, you know, also a word to the wise, if, you know, if you're seeing a terrific deal, the deal of your life, so uh, just double check your facts, go to an independent source and make sure that whatever it is you're buying is really what you're, you think you're buying. If the deal is too good to be true, it probably is. I've read that there are always job openings with MasterCoin, but not in the traditional sense. Can you explain to our listeners how your bounty system works for people interested in helping to develop MasterCoin and the MasterCoin Foundation? Oh, this is an excellent question. Thanks for that. So, uh, as I said, we have uh, we are basically transitioning uh, or, or learning as we go along what is the right bounty system for us. We started by using traditional bounties, and that's you know we have a Trello board or, or several Trello boards with just any old task out there, starting from web development, marketing, every like specific task there has a bounty in Bitcoin. Uh, and every one of these bounties also uh, deserves or awards uh, its for, for its completion an additional amount of MasterCoin. So when you complete such a bounty, you get the set amount in Bitcoins and you get a bonus amount on, on MasterCoin, which is something that a lot of people are not aware of. So we have that bounty model set up. In addition, we also have other bounty models for people that we're working with more closely. And we started by having uh, hourly bounties. You know, we just hire people for IT and for communication and other tasks and, and just pay them by an hourly basis. And then recently in the last few months, we've transitioned uh, a lot of the work to just role-based bounties that are much like traditional jobs, right? You just, uh, we, we do a series of interviews 
we, we allocate a role or a position, and then you just get and then pay basically your paycheck every month. Right now, uh, we are still awarding and controlling these bounties, but it's important to understand that the goal for us is to transition away from this centralized mode of controlling the funds into a mode that the protocol itself or all MasterCoin holders will control the funds and will control all of these bounties. I mean, in a year from now, uh, hopefully a lot sooner, the protocol and every MasterCoin holder will be able to, to hire new people, fire people, increase wages, do every financial decision regarding to bounty allocation. Uh, I consider that to be a really awesome concept. Absolutely. That's great. Ron, how can we find you and how do people find out more about MasterCoin Foundation? Right. So uh, the, the main website for us is mastercoin.org. And we're also setting up a few other websites for information on purposes, which will be launched in the following uh, weeks or months. We have a lot of activity over at our Facebook group and uh, Reddit uh, channel. And just go to facebook.com slash mastercoin, I think, and Reddit slash mastercoin. And, and all the links should be at the mastercoin.org website. Uh, we also have uh, forums at uh, mastercointalk.org, and there, are some, there is some activity over at Bitcoin Talk as well. Hey, Ron, I have one more question for you. How's the weather there in Israel? Well, it's actually quite nice this time of year. N not enough rain for my taste. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bitcoins and Gravy Show. We really appreciate you being here, and we look forward to hearing more about MasterCoin Foundation. Thank you for your interest and for having me, and uh, looking forward to catching you up later. Cheers. Thanks, Ron. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interviews with David Winter and Ron Gross in our talk with Paul Freeman. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate your time and attention. Hey, Lidge, let's also give a special thanks to our friends in Southern California listening in on station KCAA, 1050 AM. Tune in Thursdays at 7 p.m. Pacific time to hear new episodes of Bitcoins and Gravy. And make sure to catch more great shows from the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network airing all week right here on KCAA, 1050 AM. Or download the podcast from letstalkbitcoin.com. That's right, John. We are proud to be part of the first Bitcoin podcast network of shows that includes Mad Money Machine with Paul Boyer, Living Freely with Stephanie Murphy, Ed and Ethan's Bitcoin Report, and of course, the gold medal champion of America's Olympic podcasting team, Let's Talk Bitcoin with Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and leave us a review on iTunes. Whether three stars or five stars, it's your reviews that help new listeners discover the show. And it's your generous tips that allow us to create the show. Our tipping address can be found at the show notes for Bitcoins and Gravy at letstalkbitcoin.com. And we thank you in advance for your generous contributions. I'm John Barrett. And I'm Lyd Shaw. And you've been listening to Bitcoins and Gravy from East Nashville, Tennessee. Psst. Hey, you. How'd you like a VIP pass to the super secret Bitcoins and Gravy after show? Yeah? Well, follow me. We're taking you live now to the historic Woodland Street Theater in beautiful East Nashville, Tennessee where Reverend Johnny's big band down-home country jam is set to debut their new single, Ode to Satoshi. Hit it, Johnny. Thank you very kindly, friends. I'd like to dedicate this song to the great American freedom fighter and songwriter, Mr. Pete Seeger. May you rest in peace. I would also like to dedicate this song to Andreas Antonopoulos for his words of wisdom and hope for us all. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, 
Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain. A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more Hey everybody, this is Paul Boyer of the Mad Money Machine, winner of the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast competition. Brandishing the blockchain to fight good versus evil, this is the battle of the century. This is the Mad Money Machine, coming to you every Tuesday at 2 p.m. immediately after the Dave Ramsey Show on KCAA Radio 1050 AM and on letstalkbitcoin.com. I'm out to prove that a show about Bitcoin can be fun. Each week we play a round of the world's favorite game, Guru Roulette. And to make your Bitcoin life easier, I'll tell you about the Bitcoin tool of the week. We'll also take a minute to look at the market for Bitcoins. And of course, we take a critical look at everyone in the headlines in this battle for the new economy. I hope you'll join me every Tuesday at 2 p.m. at KCAA Radio, 1050 a.m. and at madmoneymachine.com or letstalkbitcoin.com. I'm Ed. I'm Ethan. And together we host Ed and Ethan's Bitcoin Report live Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern on KCAA Radio 1050 AM. It's a show all about the world's leading cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Not everybody we talk to agrees with us. Like Peter Schiff. Bitcoins are not money. They're not, they're, they're, they're not better than gold. It's not gold 2.0. But we get some great perspectives from people like Eric Voorhees. Nothing has intrinsic value. Things are valued subjectively by the people doing the value. Sometimes it gets controversial. Like when we talk to Charlie Shrem. Why can't a government stop it or why can't a government come in? The same reason that the government has tried to shut down file sharing. In good times with friends and allies like Roger Ver. It's always great to talk about uh, Bitcoin with anyone <laughs> willing to listen. And thank you guys for your wonderful coverage. I listen uh, from time to time myself. Oh my goodness, awesome. I've just become Twitter paid. Roger, you have given me a case <laughs> of the vapors, good sir. <laughs> so tune in live Wednesday nights and give us a call or download direct from edandethan.com.